Well, hello, Tri-City Church. It, uh, it's a great privilege to be with you, as much as being with you means that you're not physically here in the building and I'm not physically with you. Um, but as is uh, the wonderful mystery of the church, uh, the Spirit of God dwells in his people. And so by him, we're united. And so in this strange way, we are together. In this strange way, we, we do have communion with one another, even when we're apart. Um, and so uh, some of you might know me. My name is Joshua. Like, uh, like David said, I'm, I'm a campus pastor at, at Northview. Um, your partners in ministry, your partners in the faith. And you probably wonder, what well, campus pastor? I thought, I thought there already were two other campuses that already had pastors. Well, you're very right. Um, that's because God has laid it on our heart as a church to plant a new campus. And the plan is to plant that campus in central Abbotsford. So um, oddly, in, in God's grace, in his providence, uh, he has called me to be a part of that, that plant in that church. So uh, on a personal note, on a personal appeal, um, I come to you just, just to ask that you would pray. Um, that you would pray that God would bless our plans, that God would bless that community with his word, that, that the Holy Spirit would accompany his word, his gospel, and people would receive it with faith, uh, with great joy at the good news of Jesus. So, uh, so that's my, my personal appeal to you. Some of you I know, uh, and so it would have been great to shake your hands or, or elbow bump or whatever we would have done um, because you're my friends. And so uh, it's a great privilege to bring the word of God to you. But this morning or this afternoon, like David said, it could be any time, um, we're going to look to the word of God. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Uh, last week, Pastor Matt began for us a sermon series on conflicting kingdoms. On, on how we see Jesus in the week coming up to his crucifixion. Every day through the week, we see that there, there begins to rise some tension. Uh, Jesus is doing some things and allowing people to say some things about him that the Pharisees are thinking, hey, Jesus, uh, this is not right. You, this that can't be true that you are these things. You need to stop these people. And so Jesus letting it happen, all of a sudden there's a little bit of tension rising up. And we're going to see today, I think this, this might be one of the most tense texts uh, of, of what's going on between the Pharisees and Jesus. And so uh, if you'd look with me in Matthew 21, I'm going to read our text, uh, and then we'll kind of unpack it together and see just how Jesus, on the Monday, as that's right, we've moved from Sunday to Monday, on the Monday of the week coming up to his crucifixion, uh, just what he does that is going to push the Pharisees even one step closer to calling for his crucifixion. So if you'd read with me Matthew 21, we're going to start at verse 12. This is the word of God. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word. And we are so thankful, again, as David prayed, Lord, for technology, for how you and your providence in the midst of, of everything that's going on in our world, uh, God, you have prepared a day where there is a technology to record a sermon uh, and to preach your word, to see it continue to go forward to your people and to the world. Um, 
And so, God, we want to thank you. We want to rejoice for how you work. Um, And, Lord, particularly, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for how by it you choose to sanctify your people. You call us uh, to righteousness, uh, and you remind us. You remind us by your word of the gospel of Jesus, that it is not by our merit, not by our works, that we stand before you with any cleanness, but it is simply by the grace of Christ. And so, God, we pray that your word would come to us as a hammer, um, that it would soften our hearts, it would break stony hearts. Um, God, your, your word would come as a comfort. Um, you would do your work through, uh, through the seeds that are planted. So, God, thank you for this text. Uh, we pray for your blessing over us as we receive it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, Monday. Monday, the day right after Sunday. That seems about logical, right? Okay. Sunday, Jesus rides on a donkey into Jerusalem. And, and what's happening, Matt, Pastor Matt did a great job last week explaining to us that, that in this event, Jesus sitting on a donkey, there, there's all sorts of, of references to the Old Testament and things that the Jews would not have missed, things that they would not have misunderstood. Jesus was claiming to be the king of the Jews. And the reason we can get that they didn't, they didn't miss that is because they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. God save us, God be praised, because the son of David, the one of David's heirs has come. They're singing that. He's saying, I'm the king. Now, okay, the king has all sorts of power to do whatever he'd like. If he actually is the king, and Jesus is not saying he's not, he's actually accepting it quite willingly. He's saying he is the king. So the king comes into his city. What can the king do? The king could do whatever he wants. The king could start to reform the political situation. He could come in and say, this is all not quite right. The Romans are in our city. We need to change that. And that's probably what the Jews are hoping for. They're hoping he's just going to reform it all and suddenly they're going to be their people of Israel. Great. Well, he doesn't do that. Okay, well, he could have. He could have come in and dealt with the socioeconomic problem. He could have went to the poor and started to say, we're going to start handing out money. And the son of God, he could have done whatever he'd liked. He could have provided money just like that. He could have come to the, the, the weak and the sick and he could have just started healing. This is, this is the real problem in the city that there are people who aren't being cared for, but that's not what he does. What does the Son of God do? What does Jesus do the first steps into Jerusalem? Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple. He makes a beeline for the temple of God. Now, why is that? Well, because I think what we're seeing is Jesus unveiling to us his priorities. His priority with this city, Jerusalem, with the people of Israel, the Jews. And what is his priority? His priority is the spiritual life of Israel. It's the spiritual life. He goes to where the heart of their worship is. It's in the temple. That's where they made the sacrifices. That's where they celebrated God's work. It was the temple. So Jesus makes a beeline there. And it displays for us his first priority. And the first priority is, his, is the spiritual life of his people. When I, when I was a kid, um, I had this experience almost on the daily. My dad would come home from work. And he would show up. And he'd be tired. And he'd walk through those doors and immediately, we'd want to see him. He's our dad. We're excited. He's home, finally. But he would walk right past us. Not that he would ignore us. And not that we certainly felt any, in any way unloved. But he would walk right toward my mom. And he would give her a kiss. And he would say, how are you? And either they would sit on the couch, or he would join her in the kitchen, and they'd work together. And they would just talk about their day. We understood that, that our dad passing by us didn't mean that he didn't love us. It meant that he had a priority. That his first priority was his wife. It was our mom. 
And, and we actually began to, to get the sense of that so much so that, that if ever came a day when our dad didn't do that, we kind of were like, dad, what's wrong? Something's mixed up here. You didn't go talk to mom. So our priorities, our priority indicates what we value. It indicates what we care about. So I think we, we need to see that with Jesus going to the temple. The first thing he does in the city of Jerusalem is he goes to the temple. It's because he cares about their spiritual life. He cares about how they're doing spiritually. But let me give you another, another illustration. A doctor a doctor is only seen to be a competent doctor when they deal with the actual problem and not the symptoms of a problem. Somebody walks into the emergency room, they've got a broken arm, and it's quite obviously broken. It's bent the wrong way. You know, it's crooked. And the doctor says, well, what, what seems to be the problem? And the, and the person says, well, you know what? My arm really hurts. And well, that seems natural. It's broken the wrong way. Well, the doctor, if he was not a particularly competent doctor, would say, here, I'm just going to give you some painkillers, and that'll sort it all out. And you take, oh, this is great. I don't feel any pain. Awesome. But that doctor would be terribly uncomfortable because the problem isn't the pain. The problem is the bone that is now out of place. A competent doctor would go to the root of the problem and would go and say, we need to set this bone straight. And though maybe, maybe there's going to be some extra pain, there's going to be some symptoms that are caused by setting this bone straight, I recognize that this is the most important thing so that down the long haul, your arm would be healthy again and the symptoms would go away. So also here, I don't think we're simply seeing Jesus saying the most important thing is your spiritual life. I think he's also saying the root of all the problems, the root of everything else that is going wrong in the world is your spiritual life. The root of every other struggle is the spiritual life of Israel. And so like a good doctor, like the good physician, he goes to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is in the temple. Now, this is something that Jesus exemplifies to us time and time again in his ministry. The most important thing, the priority, is spiritual life. If you take your Bibles, if you're looking at it, I hope you are, flip, take your Bible, flip it, or if you got your phone, take, take a look at Matthew chapter 5. And I just want to zip through a couple stories here of Jesus displaying for us. This is, not, this is not an isolated event. He's not simply saying, here, well, now I realize the problem is spiritual life. He has known this the whole time. And so he says this in Matthew 5, the start of his, arguably his greatest sermon ever preached by anyone on the world, he begins it with these words, Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He starts his sermon, the greatest sermon, by saying, blessed, happy, fulfilled are those who recognize their spiritual poverty. He hits the note of their spiritual life right away. If you turn to Matthew 9, verse 2. We have a story of a paralytic, a man, a man who couldn't get up and walk, and so his friends bring him before Jesus. And Jesus, seeing the paralytic laying before him, he sees the faith of those who brought him, and he says to the paralytic these words, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, on the surface, we'd all be looking, saying, Jesus, that's not the problem. The problem is his legs don't work. He can't get up. Why are you forgiving his sins? Jesus sees something deeper. He sees that the problem... The problem is his spiritual life. The problem is his sin. Take a look with me again, again in chapter 9, starting at verse 10. Jesus goes, and, and he has just called himself another disciple, Matthew, verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were re reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, it's not like they were actually physically unwell. They're just tax collectors and sinners. 
But Jesus is calling attention to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is the sickness, which is their sin. Those who think they're well don't need help. It's those who recognize that they're sick. He reaches into the spiritual problem. Again, Matthew 11, verse 29. Jesus Jesus makes this wonderful statement. He says, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That was verse 28, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest not for your bodies. Yeah, that's important. That's, that's important and good health. But what is Jesus wanting to strike at? What is he calling them to? Rest for their souls. He's concerned with their spiritual life. One more, one more. Chapter 12, verse 33. Jesus makes this statement. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good? Now you have to understand, he's talking to the Pharisees here. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. He's saying the root of your problem isn't what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside. Out of the good of one's heart comes good. Out of the evil comes evil. So when Jesus comes to the temple, he is simply displaying to us something that has been true in his whole ministry. The root of the problem is not sickness. It's not political situation. It's not socioeconomic situation. The root of the problem of the people of Israel is their spiritual life. The priority of spiritual life. That's what we're seeing here. So in Jesus' ministry to you, Let's, at the risk of making application in my very first point, which goes against every sermon class I've ever had. How are you doing spiritually? That's what, it's the dreaded question, right? You invite somebody over for supper, maybe another couple, and you think, ah, oh, it's going to be great. We're going to talk about sports. We're going to talk about whatever. And they sit down. You're talking over supper. And suddenly somebody says, hmm, how are you doing spiritually? You kind of think to yourself, oh boy, are they still here? But it's an incredibly important question. It's the question. How are you spiritually? Jesus makes this striking statement in his ministry. And maybe you've heard it. I hope you have. If you haven't, I hope you never forget it. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? If you got everything you ever wanted, if, if the political situation all of a sudden changed and you're, this is great, I'm living in whatever, whatever political situation you wanted. If suddenly you have all the riches that you wanted and you're in the top echelon of those who are paid and suddenly your physical health is restored and you are the strongest man or woman on the world. But if you died and lost your soul, what would it, what would it be worth? What would it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? That's the question that I think needs to probe our hearts now and, and through the rest of this text. The priority of spiritual life. That's what Jesus displays to us. But he moves on in the text to describe for us what the problem is with the spiritual life of Israel because he comes to the temple and he sees some problems and he, and he deals with them. Okay, let's, let's read. Starting at verse 12 again. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So what is Jesus, what is Jesus striking at? He's striking at the purity of spiritual life. 
It's not, only, it's not only that we need to prioritize spiritual life, but we need to prioritize the purity of spiritual life. Or, or to say it another way, the, the authenticity of spiritual life. Because on the outside, you could actually look at this and say, well, you know, we could argue that the people of Israel actually are doing good things. Why, why were those who sold sacrifices there? It's those who, who sold pigeons, he says in verse 12. Why were they there? Well, because... Because people who lived a long way off wouldn't necessarily pick up all their animals and carry to Jerusalem, but they would just bring some money and they would buy a sacrifice there. So they're, you're thinking, okay, well, so they're, they're facilitating worship. That, why is that bad? Okay. And the money changers. Well, there was a particular kind of currency that the temple accepted, and there was all sorts of currencies across Israel. So they just had to show up and they had to exchange their money, just like you're going over the border to the U.S. and you, gotta, you exchange your money. So that they could buy the sacrifice. Well, that doesn't sound bad again. They're facilitating worship, right? Doesn't that all look good? Well, the implication in the text is that it's not good. And actually, uh, Jewish history would tell us it's not good. Because this is, what, this is what would happen. You would show up and you'd say, you know what? I can't carry, I can't carry my birds or, my, or my, my, uh, lamb all the way to Jerusalem. So I'm just going to bring some money and I'll show up. Or, or actually, let's, let's say this. You do bring your animal. You do bring your animal. You show up and you would have to go by an inspector. You bring it to the inspector, and you know, it just so happened that the inspector was in cahoots with those who sold sacrifices. So they would look at your animal, and it might be perfectly good, but they would say, hmm, you know, it's, it doesn't quite fit the criteria. You should go and buy one from so-and-so. So suddenly, you had just brought your animal, and now they're rejecting it, saying, you know, to go buy from there. Oh, okay, well, if, I need to, if I'm going to worship God, certainly, okay. So they go, and you, you go to buy, but you realize, I don't have the right currency. So you go and trade out your currency for the right, for the right kind and then you come to the money changer and you find out that actually they're going to take a 25% tax on what you trade. You, you have a dollar of your currency. You, you give it to them. You get 75 cents back. It's, like, it's literally like walking over to the United States right now. And then you find out as you go to the sacrifice that a pigeon, which in our day and age, do, historians would say that if you translated our currency now to their currency, then generally a pigeon should be about five cents. Okay, all right. Bing. Easy. Well, they would sell it for $5. They would mark up that much. So you showed up to do the worship in the house of God. You brought, you brought your money to pay for your sacrifice, however it worked. And suddenly you are out a whole lot of money. And those men, those women, whoever were doing the selling are suddenly up a lot of money. So what's happening? Why is Jesus come in and what is it? He, he flips tables? Well, because their worship, so-called, was actually leading to greed. That those who were in the temple were, were motivated by self-gain. And so their spiritual life, as good as it might have looked, were facilitating worship, we're doing the work of God. It was impure. It was unauthentic. Now, I just want to take a, a quick, quick moment here to recognize with you, uh, within our imaginations, just how crazy this scene is. So Jesus... Jesus, this is, this is the one. We just, read it. we just read a little text. He said, come to me. I'm lowly. I'm gentle. I'll bring you rest for your souls. Huh? Jesus, lowly and gentle. That's kind of the sense we get about him, right? He's very caring. He's very compassionate. All of a sudden, he is angry. Uh, there, there is a theologian by the name of R.C. Sproul who, who recently passed away. There was a time when, when he was in a Q&A. Uh, some of you may have seen this video. It is brilliant. But he's in a Q&A. Somebody asks a question. The question is posed to the, to the panel. And the question is this. Well, if God's so merciful, if he's so kind and so steadfast in his love, why is it that he was so hard on Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden? And R.C. Sproul begins to answer. 
with what seems to be a gentle answer, but he begins to get more and more firm as he says, are you serious? Adam and Eve just broke God's law, of which God said, when you eat of that fruit, in, the, in that day you will surely die. And did they die? No. Jesus actually, or God actually clothes them and covers their sin and lets them live a day and another day and another day. We're, we see the miraculous mercy of God. And, and by the end of the question, he actually looks at the crowd and he says, what's wrong with you people? And the crowd, you know, thinking, thinking this is Archie's brawl being funny because he's a gentle, kind man. They start clapping. And he says, no, I'm serious. And suddenly the clapping stops. When somebody we know to be gentle and lowly uh, gets angry, we know they're serious. Maybe you have memories of this uh, like I do, but, but I remember the odd time, and it wasn't very often in our home, but the odd time when my parents would get angry. And, and when they did, it was, it was justified. But when they got angry, we knew it was a big deal because they did not get angry often. Jesus walks into the temple, and what does it literally say? He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And in other texts in Mark 11 and Luke 19, it says he drove them out. So Jesus, this lowly kind, he walks into this temple. And again, this is around the Passover. There's like a million and a half people there. And they're all coming to the temple because this is the heart of their worship. There's a million and a half people. But, and they're crowding this court. And Jesus comes in, he starts flipping tables, money's going everywhere. And, and remember, they're greedy people. They're diving to try and catch their money and pull it in and save it. But they're also trying to get away from this fierce man who is flipping their tables and their seats and driving them out. What does that show us about what Jesus thinks about our worship, about our spiritual life? He doesn't take sin kindly. He doesn't say, take sin lightly. And the sin, I, I just want to point out three, three things we see of the sin of these people. First, we just see the greed, right? We've, we've just looked at that, how they would abuse this system to extort people. But secondly, secondly, I want you to see that the spiritual life is not defined by hypocrisy either. So it's not defined by self-gain. It's also not defined by hypocrisy. Look at the, look at the phrase, den of robbers. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Verse 13. That's actually found in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. You have a moment. Let's, let's flip there. 7. I'm going to start at verse 8 and read down to verse 11. Because this is the context of what Jesus is alluding to when he's talking about a den of robbers. Verse 8. Jeremiah chapter 7. Behold, you trust in deceptive words. To no avail will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal a pagan idol and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. So in that day, Jeremiah, the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, calls out the people of Israel for going and worshiping Baal and then coming to the temple and saying, we're delivered, we're fine. We're still the people of God. We're the people of Yahweh. How often is it that we find ourselves in our week chasing off of all manner, chasing after all manner of idols and then showing up on Sunday and thinking, I'm okay. I go to church. I'm fine. When, when that last day comes, I'll be welcomed into the kingdom. I go to church. Well, Jesus is calling out the hypocrisy of the Israelites. So it the spiritual life is not defined by self-gain. It's not defined by hypocrisy. And then, and then notice, then notice the phrase, my house shall be called 
a house of prayer. Now, immediately we just think, oh, okay, well, people show up and they pray. What's well, true? But if you turn with me to Isaiah, which is where we find the context of this passage, Isaiah chapter 56. Here, this is, this is when the people are about to return to rebuild the temple in 520 BC. And so Isaiah 56, verses 6 to 8, this is what the word says. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these, these foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. In Mark 11, as this this story is being recorded of, of Jesus cleansing the temple, he actually goes that far to quote Jesus saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Now this all was happening in the court of the Gentiles, which is the outermost court inside the temple. This is where the Gentiles, the foreigners, would show up to worship. And what's happening there right now? Well, it's not the Gentiles showing up to worship. It is the Jews showing up to sell and to make money and to change money and to earn. And, to, and it turns, they called it the Bazaar of Annas, who was the high priest at that time. This is just where Annas made all his money. So the, courts of the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles should be worshiping God, is now filled with sales. And who's not allowed to worship? Who is, who is struggling to do the worship? It's the Gentiles. He calls out the discrimination that was happening in Israel. And so the spiritual life is not defined by discrimination. It's not, it's not looking and saying, well, you're not quite like us, so you're not welcome here. That's not spiritual life. That's not the life Jesus calls us to. Jesus gets angry over all of this. That, that their spiritual life, their so-called spiritual life, was defined by self-gain. We're getting our own money out of this. It was defined by, by hypocrisy, and it was defined by discrimination. That was the spiritual life of Israel. And it was unauthentic. It was not pure spiritual life. And Jesus gets angry because it's a big deal. And so the question posed to us, that this, this, this text calls us to, what do we see in our own spiritual life? When we see those things, when we see hypocrisy, do I look at my own life and think, yeah, you know, I kind of use church as a reason to justify what I do. I go to church on Sundays. I'm fine to do whatever else I want during the week. Jesus gets angry and flips tables at that. Finally, having seen the the priority of spiritual life, the purity of spiritual life that Jesus, Jesus calls them to, finally we see a picture of spiritual life. We see the picture in, these, in this text, which all, all of a sudden, it's like there's a breath in the middle of all this. Because, again, imagine the chaos. Jesus just flipped tables. People are running out. What's going on? This man is flipping tables, and money's going everywhere. They're trying to gather it. All this chaos. And suddenly, suddenly, verse 14, it's like we breathe. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Suddenly, suddenly, things aren't, aren't loud anymore. There, there, might be, there might be the odd bleeding of a sheep off in the distance or whatever, but, but what's happening? Blind and lame people have wandered into the temple and Jesus is healing them. This is a picture now from what was the impure spiritual life, from what was the, the, the corrupt spiritual life of Israel, to suddenly this is a picture of the spiritual life that God calls us to. It is the blind and the lame healed. 
There's more to that than simply the blind and the lame being healed, physical healing. Because across Jesus' ministry, we see this time and time and time again. We see that Jesus heals people, but he heals them and then talks about a deeper need. He actually heals them to illustrate what Jesus has actually come to do. He hasn't come to just simply heal people who who can't use their legs so they can stand up again. He hasn't simply come to, to open blind eyes or to unstop deaf ears. That's not why he came. But every single piece of that is a picture of what Jesus has actually come to do, which is to take our broken and bent souls and make them right. To actually come and diagnose our sin and see that healed and made new. Friends, this is, this is the gospel. It's just the, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ displayed in a moment of a breath during his cleansing of the temple. And the display is this, that those who come to him, who recognize the depravity, the brokenness of their own soul, their twistedness, that, that they cannot see what is true about God. They cannot hear what is true about God. They cannot understand, but they come to him and Jesus opens their eyes unstops their ears and makes their soul right again. Takes that which is bent and restores it. This is the gospel of Jesus. And friends, you you need to hear this. This is my charge before God as a preacher to preach to you the gospel. And the gospel is this, that, that if you remain in your sin, all that you have to expect is condemnation on the last day. And that is right and that is just and that is good. But the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is that he came to suffer, having lived a perfectly righteous life, to suffer a criminal's death on a cross so that you wouldn't have to suffer that death, but that he would make your sins right before God. He would atone for them and pay the debt you owed and you could be healed. Once blind, but now I see. This is the gospel of Jesus. And what you need to do, what his call to you is come Repent of your sin, turn away from it, and cling. Cling to Jesus Christ. So in the middle, in the middle of this, this chaotic cleansing, there's a breath. But there's more, there's more than just his healing of the blind and the lame. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So, so suddenly, see how dramatic the picture has changed? From people trying to sell things, all of a sudden it's loud, it's crazy. People are trying to, to get as much money as they can. And suddenly, whoop, they're gone. Jesus is healing people and there's children running around singing, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Now, where did they learn that? They learned it from their parents. They learned it from, from their neighbors, from everybody that they heard shouting it as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey just the day before. Hosanna to the son of David. They're singing. But Jesus quotes an Old Testament text. He quotes from Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, the psalmist declares for us that the, that the heavens declare the glory of God and then goes on to, to make this statement, which we read here. Jesus quotes, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Essentially what the text is saying, that God in the perfect spiritual life, in the healthy life, is praised Without, without being provoked to praise. That the spiritual life is unprovoked praise. That we just praise him. We, we just praise him for who he is. We just praise him. The, the stars in the sky praise him. It's not like Jesus has to do something around them that all of a sudden they see another star fly by and they say, woohoo, praise God. No, no, they just praise him. 
It's not like we have to see God do miraculous things in our lives to praise him. We just praise him. That is the spiritual life. That is a picture of the life Jesus calls for us. Unprovoked praise. But we also see, we see the Pharisees. And, and what they're seeing, and this is the conflict, this is conflicting kingdoms right here. What they're seeing is Jesus come in and say, every bit of your worship is dishonoring God. That I need to flip over tables and I need to do my own thing here. And the Pharisees come and they say, do you hear what these kids are saying? They're saying, Hosanna, the son of David. You don't find out what fake money looks like by studying fake money. You find it out by studying the real thing. Jesus shows us the real thing of a spiritual life. The real thing is being made right before God, being made whole, once lame, now walking, once blind, now see, once, once deaf, now hearing. It's being made whole. It's, it's unprovoked praise. But the, the Pharisees look and say, well, if you're saying that what I have is fake and that what you're showing is real, I don't have any of that. And when somebody is faced with that question, you have either two responses. Either you say, hmm, can I get some of the real thing? Or you say, if all I have is the fake thing, that's all I have, then I have to convince myself it's the real thing. And what you have is fake. The reality of the, of the spiritual life is that people are going to look on, particularly those like the Pharisees who think they have worked to earn their salvation, and they're going to look on and they're going to say, what you have isn't real. It can't be because I've earned what I've got. And they convince themselves that what is fake is real when it's not. The real spiritual life is what Jesus shows us here in the temple. Sounds like something that would cause a little bit of tension. You've just said, Jesus has just said of the Pharisees, your spiritual life is unhealthy. And the Pharisees pride themselves on their spiritual life. We're obeying the law to the T, to the dot. Jesus comes in and says, well, I got to flip your tables. So Jesus shows us here the priority of spiritual life. That the most important thing to him and the root of the problem is the health of our spirituality. He shows us the purity of spiritual life by showing us what it's not. It's not self-gain, it's not hypocrisy, and it is not discrimination. And those are, just, those are just snippets. There's so much more across the New Testament. And finally, he shows us the picture of spiritual life, what it actually is. And it is being made whole by Jesus. And it is offering unprovoked praise. It's not that God has to do anything miraculous in my life. I don't have to see him spark some great thing. I will just praise him because I'm spiritually alive. And my life is hid with Christ on high. This is what he shows us. It, what an interesting text. That he comes to the temple in Jerusalem. He casts out the money changers and the sellers of sacrifice. And he does his work. Miraculous. On Monday of the week leading up to his crucifixion. Just another reason why the Pharisees want to see him dead. So friends, let's consider our spiritual lives. Let's not leave that to be the last thing we think about. Let's not leave that to be secondary. It's not. To Jesus, it was primary. Who is Jesus? The very son of God. If it's primary to him, it should be primary to us. How are you doing spiritually? How is your prayer life? How is your time in the word? How is your time with the people of God? And that's not something to throw down judgment. It's not something to throw down condemnation. I'm not good enough. We're not good enough. Totally. This is the grace of Jesus. But, but looking at those things can give us a sense 
of whether or not our affection really is for Jesus. Of whether or not we look at those things and say, I long to be praying more. I long to be in his word more. It doesn't matter how much you're in his word. That's not, that's not what you're saved based on. It's on the grace of Christ. But if you see in yourself a love for the prayer, if you see in yourself a love for the word of God, if you see yourself a love for the church, then what you see in yourself is spiritual life that only God can offer. Let's long for that in ourselves. Let's pray together. God, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for how Christ walked this earth, the very dust between his feet. Um, God, that this planet that we walk on, that we live on, Christ came and he came for our sake to rescue us, to save us from our own sin, to make us right before you, that on the last day you could say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, come into the joy of your master. Lord, we long to hear those words. So thank you for Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice. Lord, would you, would you open our eyes to our spiritual life? Would you open our eyes to our, to our worship? God, that we would see in ourselves either the sparks of true life which are given by you alone or Father, that we would see the barrenness of our souls and we would long for the living water that only you can offer. Call us to that. So thank you for your church, God. Thank you for technology, for how we can gather as your church to hear your word, even though we, we are in different places. We just thank you. And I want to pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.